Welcome to Three Deadly Sins, a podcast full of wrath, greed and envy. It has been a very busy end to the year of 2022 and as such I am behind on recording some of my podcast episodes. I'm endeavouring to make up for that during the Christmas January break, so stay tuned. I hope to have some more episodes released shortly. This episode is essentially sort of a replay of a presentation I gave to LegalWise Seminars, which is to other lawyers, in November 2022. The topic was elder abuse and crime. Now, this struck me at first as an unusual topic because elder abuse is not a crime in New South Wales. However, LegalWise allocated it to me and I thought it was a little bit more interesting than some of the other topics, which I admit can be fairly dry. So thinking about it, I thought the cases that I looked at in this research for this presentation actually fit well with the topic of the podcast. So I thought I would just go through some of those cases now because some of them are a little bit more interesting and a little bit more sort of tick the vibe of true crime podcasts (laughs) that I know are very popular. So I'll start with the definition of elder abuse, which is commonly referred to. It's the WHO, the World Health Organization's definition, which is an abuse of an older person where it's an intentional act or failure to act, and it can be a single act or a, a series of acts, by a caregiver or another person in a relationship involving an expectation of trust that causes harm to an adult 60 years and older. It is quite prevalent and In Australia, recent studies showed that about one in six people were reporting some type of elder abuse and who actually suspect that only 4% of abuse is actually reported. So it is far more prevalent than we'd like to believe. Now, elder abuse can come in a variety of forms. It can come in the form of psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse and neglect. So the ACT is the only jurisdiction in Australia that has made a specific crime of elder abuse. Now that was enacted in 2020 and obviously with the pandemic it's no surprise that there have yet to be any charges laid or any prosecutions made using those provisions of the ACT Crimes Act. I'm not going to go into that for the purpose of this podcast. My focus today is really just talking about some of the cases which I kind of guess highlight that there are other crimes that aren't specifically related to elder people that can be used to show when people are engaging in extreme forms of elder abuse or extreme forms of trying to scam elderly people in particular because they are identified generally as a vulnerable sector of the community. So there were a couple of murder cases which probably come as no surprise and obviously murder is murder. It shouldn't really matter the age of the victim. So the first case was, there was a case whereby in regional New South Wales, there was an elderly gentleman living in a granny flat and in the main house belonged to his nephew and his nephew had various housemates that lived with him. Now the elderly man was quite fastidious with his money. He didn't have a lot. He only had about $35,000. He managed a checkbook fairly closely and he also would go to the ATM and withdraw money. Now, on one occasion, it turned out what happened is that when the man had left his premises, whether to go to the shops or to have a longer stay away from the granny flat, his nephew would often let him and his housemates into the granny flat for whatever purpose. It was never established. And the 
offender in this case was the flatmate of the nephew and had been into the elderly gentleman's home a number of times. He was aware that the victim kept a checkbook and it turned out what had happened, he actually had torn out a check and had very carefully done it. So the only way anyone would have noticed a check was missing if, if they actually looked at the check number, which obviously the victim in this case neglected to do. And because he was so fastidious, he carried forward the balance in the check butts so that the offender could see that there was over $30,000 left in the account. So what the offender did is he, he went to the lengths of driving more than an hour away to another regional town and essentially drew a cheque in favour of himself or in favour of cash rather for the amount of $30,000. Now this essentially almost completely depleted the victim's account. So when he next went to the ATM, he noticed immediately that his money had been missing. Understandably, he went around town asking various people, including his nephew, if they were aware of any scams or any any way he could have lost $30,000. When the offender heard from the nephew that the gentleman had noticed that the money was missing, the offender decided to go and confront the victim. So he took in a weapon and battered the elderly gentleman. However, he decided that that weapon was not sufficient, so he actually went and got, and got another weapon. So ultimately, the victim was murdered by the offender and all because the offender didn't want to be found out for stealing $30,000. So it's kind of quite an extreme case, but it does show how these people who engage in crimes it can escalate quite quickly that you know he was afraid of being caught out for stealing so he went one step further and murdered the gentleman there was a case the prosecution brought a neglect case in the case of r and thompson and david r thompson philip back in 2019 this was a case of two brothers who were left caring for their elderly mother and their mother had refused to go into aged care and she didn't even want to go to hospital The prosecution tried to allege that the brothers had failed in their duty of care for caring for their mum to such an extent that it most amounted to gross criminal negligence. Now, the brothers were actually acquitted because what had happened is that the woman had been suffering bed sores and, like, she couldn't get out of bed for about 10 days before the brothers called an ambulance. And in that time, the bed sores were quite significant. The medical staff thought that the bed sores would probably been there a lot longer and there was evidence that they contained faecal matter as well. So she wasn't in very clean or sanitary circumstances. The lady ended up dying a few days after entering into hospital, which is why the charges were brought. However, at the trial, the medical evidence provided said that the bed sores can erupt within a very short period of time. So the fact that the bed sores were quite significant was not evidence that they had been there for a long time and so ultimately they weren't able to establish the higher standard of proof in criminal matters which is being satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. They could only satisfy, they might have been able to satisfy on the balance of probabilities but not beyond a reasonable doubt. So those brothers were actually acquitted and that particular case did receive quite a lot of media attention. Then we had some other cases that we looked at. One was a Ponzi scheme style case of McLaren VR, which was the decision in the Criminal Court of Appeal was handed down in 2021. Essentially, that was kind of sounded a little bit like Melissa Caddick, although obviously it wasn't her. 
the person professed to have certain financial expertise and at one stage they even represented that they were a barrister. They had quite a number of victims where people got them to invest money allegedly in their self-managed superannuation schemes but turned out that the money wasn't being invested at all but funding a lavish lifestyle of the person and also funding paying back people who sort of were getting sus and wanted their money back. One of the victims of this particular scheme was Lisa Ho who is a well-known fashion designer in Australia but there were also quite a number of retirees and elderly persons who were victims where they had been convinced and usually that person is in a position of trust so they usually start with friends and family and then they'll move out they'll get their friends and family to refer other people to them so people sort of have this sort of trust that because such and such knows them and has trusted their money with them that they must be okay and I guess one lesson of these Ponzi style schemes is that people just don't do their due diligence like whilst we say people should and think most of us think we would at the end of the day quite a lot of us don't and are quite satisfied with sort of very sort of superficial level of evidence of a financial scheme sort of living up to the representations that are made. There was a case back in 2006 so this was the case of R and Higgins. Now this is probably a case that wouldn't really happen these days just because the way society has changed so much particularly in relation to banking practices it's difficult to foresee that this would continue to be an issue. No doubt it perhaps was a much larger issue in years gone by. So in this particular case, there was a bank manager of a Commonwealth bank. He had been the manager of this particular branch for quite a number of years. So over the time, he had built up a position of trust with most of the community that banked with him. He was well known to people and, you know, back in those days, people trusted the bank manager. They were considered one of the most trustworthy professions that there could be. So because he'd been there for so long, obviously a lot of his clientele and customer base had aged and in the town where he was based, there was a facility that had both assisted living and aged care facility all in one. So he would go to the facility and meet with his former clientele because they were usually not able to go and go back to the branch like they used to. And these are people that we're used to dealing with checks and cash rather than moving on to debit cards and credit cards and things like that. So in this particular case, what had happened is that one of his elderly clients, she gave him a check from another bank for $73,000. It was some sort of inheritance she had received. So she gave it to the bank manager and asked him to invest it for her. So again, this belies the position of trust that a bank manager used to have. And it was only after she had passed away that her executors discovered that that 70000 had never been banked or invested in her name. And so an investigation ensued and ultimately he was found guilty of fraudulently admitting to account, which is a crime under the Crimes Act. Then there was a case of O'Brien and R., And this was a case that you've probably heard in the media from time to time, cases of the fake tradie scams and things like that, whereby people come knocking on your door, offering to fix your roof or put on solar panels or something like that. You pay them the money, often in cash, and then you never see them again. So this was one of those matters. And this was a decision handed down by the Court of Criminal Appeal in 2022, and the offender was found guilty of dishonestly obtaining financial advantage by deception. Now, this person was part of a criminal gang. He actually wasn't even an Australian resident. He was a foreign resident. 
Most of the victims in this particular scam were elderly and one of the victims had actually lost her home because what they did was they come around offering to do roof repairs. So this lady was convinced that her roof needed repairing. She paid these person money. They had no experience, no qualifications or expertise in fixing roofs. So whatever work they did to the house was often poorly done and often created more problems than they may have existed in the first place. So for that particular lady, the cost of the rectifications were so significant that she actually couldn't afford to pay and had no option but to sell her home. In this particular appeal, it was interesting because the offender was from Ireland and he had a disabled son and basically his former partner, I think it was, and son had gone back to Ireland and he was jailed for five years and he was trying to allege that was excessive because his family was dependent on him financially, particularly his disabled son. Essentially, the court said that was making a mockery of the criminal law and the justice system because it was essentially he was pleading leniency on the basis that his family were no longer going to be receiving money from his criminal activity. So, yeah, basically the court sort of knocked that one fairly squarely on the head. The judges in that matter actually noticed that, you know, part of the factor in sentencing was the fact that a lot of the victims were elderly and even though the sums involved weren't necessarily like significant, for elderly people it often represented their life savings. So that is a factor that the criminal courts will actually recognise. So then there was another case. This is sort of more of a romance scam, but not the typical online romance scams that most people would commonly associate. So this was a case, there was one offender and she got charged for sort of ripping off two victims and one of whom was deceased at the time of the hearing. So the first victim was a man in his 70s. They met in their local RSL club. She essentially came up to him because she saw him on his own and eventually they struck up a friendship and I think he at least felt that the friendship became more more than that and was a bit more romantically involved. So quite quickly she introduced him to a friend and quite quickly he was giving money for this friend's alleged financial constrained circumstances. Then all of a sudden they suggested that the three of them go on a holiday to Fiji and so they said, oh, look, let's go on this holiday to Fiji, you know, can you just pay your way? So he thought everything was going to be divided three ways, but in the end they basically got him to pay for the whole holiday for all three of them, including business class airfares. Every now and then he sort of would say to her, look, I'm sort of a little bit sick of giving you money, and she kind of just said, oh, no, no, oh, no, but you're so generous, you're so wonderful, you know, we need this. And the clincher came, she asked for $25,000 for an operation. So he handed over the $25,000, but he really cared for this person or thought he cared for her by this time. And so he decided to go to the hospital and, and visit her because that's obviously what someone who cares for you would want to do. So this was up on the Central Coast. So he first went to the John Hunter Hospital, which is the large hospital up in Newcastle. So we went there and he gets told by the staff, no, no, there's no patient by the name of the offender here and there hasn't been in the last couple of days. So we thought, oh, okay, that's a bit odd. So he then went to the next hospital at Wyong and gets told the same thing. So there's only one other hospital on the central coast. So he drove to Gosford Hospital, went to them and he gets told the same thing. And that for him was when the penny dropped. So he realised then that he had been tricked and he felt stupid and embarrassed, as we could understand. 
So the court found that, you know, he had evidence that, you know, the only reason he gave the money was that he cared for her and it was the stories of hardship he was being presented with that sort of spoke to him and was the reason he handed over money. If he just was asked for the money, he wouldn't have handed it over. It was the fact that these extra sort of lengths she went to to say, you know, you know, my friend's a victim of domestic violence or I've got to have this operation or, or I'm going to be evicted from my property or, or all these little sort of stories were what sort of induced him to hand over the money. So in that case, the total amount he was scammed was only $33,400, but nevertheless, it was a significant sum for him. The second victim of this offender lived in a mobile home park. So it turned out that's actually where the offender lived, but she never told this victim that's where she lived. She pretended that she was just visiting a friend in the park when she met the elderly person. Now, this person was in their 90s. And so she started asking him for money fairly quickly for rent, for car expenses, sort of small things. Although it turned out she owned her property or her van, so there was she didn't have to pay rent. You know, and he actually was a little bit stronger in saying, look, you've got to stop asking me for money. But he actually had that discussion with her when they were in the car driving. He was, she was driving him up to Newcastle and they were on the middle of the freeway. And he said, look, I really want you to stop asking me for money for everything. And she said, well, if you don't keep giving me money, well, I'm going to drop you right now here in the middle of the freeway and you can make your own way home. Now, that's quite a long distance and for a gentleman in their 90s was not a pleasant prospect to be faced with. So obviously he felt he had no choice but to keep handing over the money. She also then threatened that she would tell people that they were in a sexual relationship, which on her own evidence they weren't, and he was apparently quite worried about that because he didn't want to be seen to be involved in a sexual relationship with her. It was only when he got unwell, he was admitted to hospital and his daughter came to visit him that he confided to her everything that had been going on and then he actually died not long after and it wasn't clear how much money he handed over. It wasn't a lot in the scheme of things but the court again was very strong on the fact that you know people over 70 are vulnerable people, people over 90 are deemed extremely vulnerable and this was quite a significant act that this woman had engaged in and there was even evidence that she perhaps had engaged in a similar scam 10-15 years prior that had never been disclosed. So she was a serial offender and obviously targeted men that she thought were lonely and a little bit isolated from their family. Next case I had was a case that actually involves a deceased estate. So this was the case of Adams and R which was decided in 2019. This ended up being a case of common law conspiracy to cheat and defraud the beneficiaries of the estate of the late Edna Pearson and the substantive offence was dishonestly obtaining a financial advantage by deception. So essentially what happened is the offender was a part of a little gang. So the gang included her father and I think it was her brother and sister-in-law. So it was a family sort of affair and Apparently this was not the only case, but this is the only case we came across in our research. So what had happened is the deceased was an elderly lady. She had been single her whole life and had no children. And she was in her 90s or late 80s at the time that the offender became part of her life. She owned her own home in Sydney and she also owned quite a number of other properties on the Central Coast. You know, so she she had a reasonably sized estate, a few million dollars at least. 
She'd prepared a will in the 1970s which left her estate to her niece and nephew and she was very fond of them. And what actually transpired is that, you know, she lived in one property and next door her brother lived and that's where the children had grown up and she had gotten to, you know, so she was fairly close to her nieces and nephew. However, after her death, it turned out that there was a will where everything was left to this offender who was a recent introduction to her life and essentially was her cleaner. So it was a little bit odd and only $10,000 was going to each of the niece and the nephews. So for them to lose favour so much did strike an unusual chord and there were various litigation proceedings in relation to the probate and family provision claims which ultimately settled and they settled in about 2011 and it was only in 2014 that the police actually got involved in this because that's when the evidence of criminal conduct emerged in relation to the estate. So what had happened is that they had suspicion about the wealth of, I think, the brother or one of the other members of the gang, in inverted commas. And so the police installed listening devices in their home and they caught them talking about this estate. And essentially the father was a little bit, had his nose out of joint because he wasn't getting as much from the estate as the daughter had apparently represented to him. So there was sort of a family squabble going on which kind of gave the police a lot of evidence they otherwise would not have had. They also conducted raids and searches on the property. They found different various documents, including copies of the terms of Edna's will that were written on another date and in different typed font. So it indicated that someone had been writing the will for her and it probably wasn't really her will. So what had happened is that in 2003, Edna was placed under financial management. So this meant that she was found not to be able to make her own financial decisions and no one else had applied. So the New South Wales trustee and guardian became her financial manager. She was later diagnosed with vascular dementia and sometime after that, she met the offender. The offender, we don't know how the offender came into her life, but she started working with the victim as a cleaner, as with the deceased as a cleaner. But whilst there was no evidence of how they crossed paths, the court was satisfied that the offender had deliberately targeted Edna Pearson and, and that was part of the conspiracy. And she offered to help the deceased and that was part of her way of starting to defraud the beneficiaries. In other words, she inserted herself into the life of the deceased, gradually increased that reliance and dependence, and at the same time started bad-mouthing the niece and nephew and manipulating the Edna's view of her family members to favour the cleaner and her family over her own family members. Just because she had vascular dementia, she was easily plied with false stories and false beliefs and ultimately she began you know and they also isolated her by always being at the property so they could actually cut the people out of her life and keep them at arm's length so it's a real targeted act and the court found that in this particular late the offender had no altruistic motions in helping Edna and really the only help she provided was so that she could get her long-term gain, which was to be the sole beneficiary or the major beneficiary of the deceased estate, which she ultimately succeeded in. However, she then was jailed for seven years with a five-year non-parole period. And there was some evidence and discussion in the decision that they had actually done this to other estates. So yeah, and obviously they're not likely to be the only one. So there's just a couple of examples of some of the things people get up to in terms of trying to benefit from vulnerable people. 
So yeah, I just thought I would introduce those cases. And meanwhile, I am busy working on producing some more episodes, including more information about the Yeselat and Kalkarinos matter, which are featured in the Secrets and Lies episode that was produced earlier. So stay tuned. More episodes are coming. Thank you for listening. I'm Leah Sewell, and you're listening to Three Deadly Sins, a podcast full of greed, wrath, and envy. Thank you.